Welcome to the Bible Lab, my friends, the podcast where we explore major themes from every book of the Bible in order to see how each page points us to Jesus, who he is, and what he's done. I'm your host, Andy Wood. Thank you so much for joining us on this, the first part of a very special two-part episode. So what we're going to do in these next two episodes, Lord willing, is we are going to explore the historical context of the New Testament. To put it another way, what I want to do over these next two episodes is explain the stories and the histories that shaped the people that Jesus and John and Paul and Peter were speaking and writing to. Who were they? What had they gone through? What were they hoping for? What was the story that shaped the people that Jesus walked amongst? That is our goal for today. And so I propose to you a thought experiment. So just imagine for a moment that you were traveling abroad and you met someone who found out that you were an American and they asked you basically something like this. What makes America, America? That's a hard question. And I don't know exactly how you would answer it, but I bet I know how you wouldn't answer it. You probably would not begin with rattling off facts about the total square mileage of the United States, population, the demographics. I don't know exactly how you would answer it, but I bet your answer would involve stories. You would tell stories about people like George Washington or Abraham Lincoln or Martin Luther King Jr. You would mention certain events like the Civil War and World War II and the War for Independence. You wouldn't just list facts. You would tell stories. I think people can't understand you or where you come from without understanding your story. And the same is true for the New Testament. These 27 books that we have, they were not written in a vacuum. The authors addressed real people living in real places at real times, facing real issues and having real needs. And so if you sat down, if we could travel back in time 2,000 years, and if you could sit down and ask a Jew living in the days of Jesus about what makes the Jewish people the Jewish people, they would likely answer you by telling you five stories. Now, these five stories would cover over 700 years. 400 of those 700 years would have happened during what we call the intertestamental period, the period between the ending of the Old Testament, roughly speaking around Ezra and Nehemiah and the book of Malachi, and the beginning of the New Testament with the birth of John the Baptist. We call this the intertestamental period. And while the stories of this time are not recorded for us in the Bible, they were very real and very present to Jesus's audience. Now, we are, over these next two episodes, going to talk about a lot of names and places and dates. Many of them are going to be very familiar to you. Some of them will likely be completely foreign to you. But I don't want you to become distracted by how many names and places and dates. I don't want you to be discouraged that you can't remember them. There is no test accompanying this podcast. Our goal is to understand how these facts help us understand how the people who experienced the events of the New Testament and read the letters of the New Testament would have read and understood them. So what we're going to do is we're going to divide these five stories up into two episodes. Today, we're going to look at the first three stories that would have shaped Jesus's audience. So let's look at this first story, the story of destruction and exile with the Assyrians and the Babylonians. The first major story happened 700 years before the birth of Christ. Just to briefly review some Old Testament history, after David died, his son Solomon took the throne. Solomon reigned for 40 years. 
And in 931, Solomon died, and the kingdom of Israel split into two political units. The northern kingdom was led by a variety of kings from different dynasties, and the northern kingdom never worshipped Yahweh. They, they went astray immediately and worshipped idols until their destruction at the hand of the Assyrians in 722 BC. Now, the Assyrians were the dominant world power at this time. They had conquered most of the ancient Near East, and they had a brutal yet effective strategy for controlling conquered people. What they would do is they would take most of a population out of their land, and they would bring in thousands of people from different places already under their control and import them into the land. And what would happen as a result is your neighbor would not speak your language, would not share your customs or your cultures, and this basically guaranteed that nowhere within the Assyrian Empire would there be a people group coherent enough and strong enough to rise up against the Assyrians. And this is exactly what they did to the northern kingdom of Israel. They took most of the surviving Jews out of the land, and they brought thousands of non-Jewish people into the land. And over the course of decades and centuries, these peoples began to assimilate with the remaining Jewish people. And this is where the Samaritans came from. And this may help you understand why the Jews of Jesus' day hated the Samaritans like they did. But we will return to the Samaritans. The other player in this story is the Babylonians. The Babylonians replaced the Assyrians as the dominant world power of the ancient Near East. And they had Judah, the southern kingdom, after the split. They had Judah under their thumb. And in 605 BC, they came in and they exiled many Jewish people, including the prophet Daniel. In 597, they came back and they exhorted tribute yet again. And they took more Jews into exile, including the prophet Ezekiel. And in 586, Babylon had had enough. And they came in. And they destroyed the city of Jerusalem, they destroyed the temple, they destroyed the Davidic monarchy, and the people were taken into exile. We call these deportations the diaspora, or the scattering. The Jews were scattered from the land promised to Abraham, and they were taken into exile. And again, it's not just a political defeat here. Jerusalem, the city of God, was destroyed. The temple, the very place where God's presence was believed to dwell, was destroyed. For my American audience, imagine if someone burned down the White House, destroyed Mount Rushmore, and tore up the Declaration of Independence and the Bill of Rights. Then multiply that by a thousand. That's what the Jewish people felt as they watched all of this happen. The very cultural identity of a Jew as God's people in God's land was now gone. Scattered as they were, the only thing that helped to define a Jew was the law, which they took with them into exile. And it was this scattering that led to the establishment of synagogues. Wherever Jews would be scattered, they would gather together on the Sabbath day, on Saturday, and they would read the law and they would pray together. And they would do all of this in some regard to remind one another that we are still Jews. God is not done with us yet. Now, a positive note, this scattering also resulted in the death of formal idolatry. Now, when I say formal idolatry, I mean the practice of, of human beings bowing down before actual carved images, whether it's stone or wood or precious metals, whatever it might be. Many people before the exiles of both the northern and southern kingdom practice formal idolatry. And when they return from exile, we don't really read about formal idolatry taking place anymore. The Jews understood that it was formal idolatry that was one of the main causes of the exile. Now, we know that the human heart is an idol factory. And so by saying that 
there was no more formal idolatry. We, of course, do not mean that there was no idolatry at all. But we do not see the Jews bowing down before carved images anymore after the exile. And though these events were tragic and horrific, God was behind them. And he used these events to draw his people to himself as they waited for him to fulfill the promises. The promises that the Jewish people would take hope from were three. First, the promise to Adam, all the way back in Genesis 3.15, that God would send an offspring from the woman who would crush the head of the serpent and reverse the impact of the fall. That promise had not yet been kept. The second promise was the promise to Abraham, that Abraham's family would be blessed and would be the conduit of blessing to all of the nations. That promise had also not yet been fully realized. The third promise, and the one that the Jews after the exile attached the most hope to, was the promise to David. There was hope that since God had promised a king from the line of David who would rule the nations, there was still hope that this would happen. Because certainly right now, there was no heir from the line of David ruling the nations. So the Jews believed that this would happen. This Davidic hope was particularly strong. And so when Jesus announced the kingdom of God was near, it would have rekindled and intensified that hope. Hope for the restoration of the physical Davidic kingdom, but not hope, tragically, for a spiritual Davidic kingdom. And this is the source of so much confusion in Jesus' audience. He was not the Messiah that they were looking for. So that's the first story, the story of destruction and exile. The second story is the story of return and restoration. And this brings the Persians into our story. So the Assyrians were the dominant world power and they were replaced by the Babylonians and the Babylonians were replaced by the Persians. In 539, the Persians conquered the Babylonian empire. Cyrus, king of Persia, allowed all of the conquered peoples of the Babylonians, including the Jews, to return home. And in around 539 BC, 42,000 Jews made the journey back to the promised land. And when they got there, they began to rebuild an altar was built in Jerusalem in 537 BC. So we see again the daily, weekly, monthly, annual sacrifices being offered. After some stops and starts, the temple was completed in 517 BC. And Nehemiah, returning decades later, rebuilt the walls in 445 BC. And the Jews were now free to worship in their temples and to celebrate their festivals. So our first story was a story of destruction and exile. Our second story is a story of return and restoration. Both of these lining up with exactly what God had said would happen from the very beginning. His people had hard hearts. They would reject his laws. He would exile them, but in mercy, bring them back. And that brings us to our third story, the story of pagans and nationalism. And here we meet the Greeks. Now, the first two stories are recorded for us in the pages of scripture. And our last story, the Romans, that we'll get to in our next episode, is also recorded for us in the pages of Scripture to some extent. The third and fourth stories happen during what we call the intertestamental period. It's from the ending of the Old Testament around 430 BC with the writing of Malachi and the birth of John the Baptist. So this third story is squarely in that time period. Now, the Assyrians were replaced by the Babylonians who were replaced by the Persians. And it was the Persians who ruled the ancient world when Alexander the Great set out to conquer the world. And so when he conquered the world, that meant he needed to conquer the Persian Empire. And he succeeded spectacularly. But he not only succeeded militarily, Alexander succeeded in something that is known as Hellenization. As Alexander would conquer militarily, Alexander would import Greek language and culture. 
And Greek very quickly became the international language of all peoples. And so for the first time since the Tower of Babel, there was one dominant world language. Now this allowed Paul and the other apostles to spread the message of Jesus quickly throughout the ancient world, since basically everyone spoke Greek. Now as the years roll by during this intertestamental period, and Greek is becoming more and more common, the use of Hebrew amongst the Jews began to fade. And this presented a problem. Because the scriptures, as the Jews had been had them handed down to them, were obviously written in Hebrew. And there was a very real risk, it was thought, that perhaps one day the Jews would not be able to read their own scriptures. So legend says that 72 Jewish scribes and elders were gathered together, and over the course of 72 nights, they translated the entire Old Testament into Greek. And this is what's known as the Septuagint. Now, the Septuagint is a very important document in world history. The one thing that I would point out to you is that this is the translation, the Septuagint, that many of the New Testament authors used as they wrote the New Testament. So if Paul or Peter or John or James is quoting from the Old Testament, the book or the scroll that they would have had in front of them to copy down their quote would have been the Septuagint. And that's why, if you've ever noticed this, if you see a quote in the New Testament, quoting the Old Testament, and you see a little note in your translation and you go down to the bottom of the page, And it tells you where to turn in the Old Testament to find this quote in its original context. And you notice that the words are slightly different. It's because the Old Testament in your Bible is translated from what's called the Masoretic text, which had stayed in Hebrew the whole time. Whereas the New Testament was written quoting from the Septuagint. Now, there is no major shift here in meaning. There's nothing that's going to rock your world. I just wanted to inform you that's why you see the difference in the words. Now, Alexander the Great, though he conquered the world, he died a young man. And after Alexander's death, he challenged his generals to fight over his empire. It eventually divided into four parts, two of which are relevant to our story. A general named Seleucus claimed Babylon and Syria. So think modern day Iraq moving westward, covering Jordan, covering uh, all the way up north of modern day Israel into Syria. A general named Ptolemy reigned in Egypt and modern-day Palestine. So think of Egypt and modern-day Israel. This is where Ptolemy reigned. Now, Palestine became the buffer zone between between these two rival kingdoms. And as so often happens in history, when there's a buffer zone, it becomes a war zone. And from 323 BC, when Alexander died, and 63 BC, when the Romans are going to come in, 200 wars were fought in Palestine over those 260 years. The reason for this ferocious battling is that whoever controlled this territory controlled transportation and commerce in the eastern Mediterranean. The Ptolemies controlled it first. They governed Palestine from Alexander's death until 198 BC. And generally speaking, they were supportive of the Jews. They allowed religious freedom. And because of their policies and procedures, there was a lot of financial prosperity for all the people living in Palestine during this time. And given the dominance of Jewish culture and the prosperity they were enjoying, many Jews embraced Greek culture. This despite God's call, which still remained relevant, which still remained authoritative, for Jews to be set apart from the world. So what this means for us as readers of the New Testament is that when the New Testament authors are writing, they are writing to men and women, whether they're Jews or Greeks, they're writing to men and women immersed in Greek culture and all that came with it. And what came with it was a very high opinion of human reason and wisdom and a shocking amount of sexual immorality. 
So the Ptolemies controlled Palestine until 198, and they were replaced in 198 by the Seleucids. Now, at first, when the Seleucids took over, it not, not very much changed. But that came to an end. This policy of peace and appeasement came to an end when a man named Antiochus IV took the throne for the Seleucids. For whatever reason, Antiochus IV set out to erase Judaism. He banned all copies of the law, was punishable by death to possess it. He banned observance of the Sabbath. He banned circumcision. He banned the sacrifices. He banned the festivals. Antiochus even went so far as to offer a pig on the altar of the temple in Jerusalem. And during this period of intense persecution, questions arose in the Jewish mind. Was God punishing them for adopting Greek culture? Is that why this was happening to them? Had they ignored God's commands yet again? And divisions arose between Jewish groups as to how to answer that question. The two most important groups for our consideration are the Hellenistic Jews and Jewish nationalists. Now, the Hellenistic Jews were Jews who said, let's just dive headlong into Hellenization. Let's just abandon Judaism. If we abandon Judaism, they'll leave us alone. That's what they want. Let's just become Greeks like everybody else. That was their answer to the question. The Jewish nationalists came up with quite a different answer. And they said, when we drive these foreigners out, that's when they'll leave us alone. How that question worked itself out in history will be the topic of our story that we'll look at, Lord willing, in our next episode. But for now, my friends, take up and read. God bless. Thank you.